Colossians 8, verses 12 through 17. (coughs) Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Father God, we pray that uh, you would bless this time as we uh, look into various portions of your word. I pray that you would anoint my lips and that you would give uh, each one of us understanding, illumination, and uh, work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> <coughs> Well, last week we started looking at the hot uh, topic of uh, guidance. I was hoping that we might be able to finish today, and uh, depending on how fast I talk, we might get there. We'll see. Uh, I'll make an evaluation partway through. I wasn't able to uh, time things since I had gone to Presbytery this week, and I was getting seasick in the back of the car with Scott driving, but uh, <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll play it by ear as we go through. I, I thought probably no better way to... Uh, begin then giving a little bit of uh, background review because last week's sermon was the theological foundation, the basis for it, and I, I thought I'd start with Charles Hodge's definition of guidance. He said, Christians admit that the children of God are led by the Spirit of God, but their convictions as to truth and duty, their inward character and outward conduct are molded by his influence. They are children unable to guide themselves who are led by an everlasting father of infinite wisdom and love. This guidance is partly providential, ordering their external circumstances, partly through the word, which is a lamp to their feet, and partly by the inward influence of the spirit on the mind. Now, uh, last week I uh, outlined that with this uh, little triangle here, uh, the three parts of guidance, and we saw that the most important Uh, One was the biblical guidance, the Spirit's authority, and it's the only authoritative uh, guidance that we can have. If God has spoken to an issue through His Word, then we have no liberty. He's already given us His guidance. We need to just obey it. And if God has given us liberty on an issue, then nothing can bind our conscience, not even what we think is providential guidance or subjective guidance. There is no normative guidance other than the Word of God. And uh, we looked at one scripture that was particularly uh, vivid in that, showing what seemed to be an inward movement. It's attributed to, to God. It was a testing, though, to see whether David would go by these inward subjective movements and feelings or by the word of scripture. There's only one normative uh, guidance. And so the question might very naturally come up, well, if the word of God is sufficient for all of uh, faith and practice, And if it's the only normative thing that we have in life, why even bother looking at providence? Why bother looking at the subjective side of guidance? That's a very good question. And last week we uh, went through a ton of different scriptures analyzing uh, in part that question. 
And we saw that, first of all, the scripture talks a lot about providential guidance and subjective guidance. We can't really submit to biblical guidance if we ignore the other two. And we saw how the lines come down. It's the Bible, though, that judges every aspect of guidance that we look at. The second thing that we looked at is that it is useful, not normative, uh, but it is useful in our lives for bringing comfort, uh, the uh, assurance of salvation. Uh, that it um, gives us wisdom, it opens our eyes to things we maybe otherwise wouldn't notice, it burdens a person with a ministry that otherwise he might have found distasteful, but now he is, he's really passionate about doing this because God has placed those desires uh, within him, and so it's useful. And then third reason is that we limit the hand of God if we deny the providential guidance and we uh, deny the subjective guidance because we feel more comfortable just with uh, looking... Uh, at the scripture. And so we saw last week that even though we saw all inspired revelation has ceased in 70 AD, and we looked at Isaiah 8, and there's other passages that talk about that. Actually, I think we just assumed that, that because everybody here pretty much believes it. We didn't try to demonstrate that. But even though that has passed away, that God has continued and will continue to the end of time to bring a subjective revelation into the hearts of people. And we looked at 13 different aspects of that law, for ex uh, of that uh, revelation. For example, the law written on the heart, a knowledge of God, uh, faith, wisdom. We looked at a number of different uh, aspects of that. The Reformed theologian of the Civil War era responded to people who denied that God could uh, work in our lives and giving especially illumination. But James Henley Thornwell said, to say that God cannot communicate an intuitive conviction of his presence to the mind is boldly and presumptuously to limit the Holy One of Israel. No good reason can be given why an immediate revelation of himself is not as possible and easy as an indirect manifestation of his glory through the wonderful works which he has made. Uh, the famous theologian John Murray said, it needs also to be recognized that as we are subjects of this illumination and are responsive to it, and as the Holy Spirit is operative in us to the doing of God's will, we shall have feelings, impressions, convictions, urges, inhibitions, impulses, burdens, resolutions. Illumination and direction by the Spirit through the Word of God will focus themselves in our consciousness in these ways. We are not automata, we are and we are finite. We must not think, therefore, that a strong or overwhelming feeling or impression or conviction, which we may not be able at a particular time to explain to ourselves or others, is necessarily irrational or fanatically mystical. And then we went on to, he goes on to say exactly what we said last week, but it must be bound by the Scripture. Okay, the Scriptures are normative. It interprets prov uh, the providence. It interprets... Our, our guidance, and we need to look to others to show blind spots in our lives because we, all three of these areas really are so subject to our misinterpretation. Uh, Isaiah 8 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now, one of the objections that people sometimes bring up, especially in reform circles, is, man, we, we have a hard time understanding what you're talking about, you know, in terms of subjective guidance, uh, and I don't understand it fully either. There's a lot of things in life we do not understand. Uh, for example, I read um, about the longest flight that a homing pigeon uh, has, as far as we've recorded anyway. Uh, it was a pigeon that was taken from Saigon, uh, Vietnam, 
and they were testing out its homing instinct. They put it under a cover, put it inside a ship. They went in all kinds of circuitous ways in the China Sea. They went through several seas, Mediterranean, and uh, they finally released it, uh, I think it was in Italy. And uh, as soon as they released it, it flew straight as an arrow right back to Saigon. It took 24 days to uh, go back to its destination. People were, how in the world could a bird do that? Um, uh, we have a movie in our home from uh, Moody Science uh, Films, which is pretty cool. And it talks about these terns that will fly every year to Hawaii. And Hawaii, if you've ever looked on a globe, man, it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's just water all around. Without any landmarks, without any bearings, these terns fly straight to that island. They don't veer off course. But what's more remarkable than that is that the parent terns go several weeks before the babies. And the babies, having never been to Hawaii before, they fly straight as an arrow to Hawaii, never having learned it. They're not following their parents or anything. And the scientists are just baffled. They don't understand what in the world is going on here. And so there's a lot of things in life that we don't understand. The instincts in animals are just as puzzling as the subjective illumination, promptings, instincts, and premonition that people have. Or if you just look at illumination, you know, you're talking to people about the gospel and they're just blind as a bat. They don't understand it. It's like there is, and the scripture talks about a veil being over their eyes. It's like they can't see, you know. And then all of a sudden the lights go on. What's going on there? We don't understand it, but the scripture describes it and it says it's illumination. It's the spirit of God opening up blind eyes to be able to see what they did not see before. So don't discount subjective guidance simply because you cannot understand it. So in any case, last week we outlined 13 kinds of subjective guidance, all of which were called a revelation in the scripture. Now, there are other kinds of subjective guidance as well, but those 13 are all called a revelation uh, or illumination. John 1, 9 uh, indicates that uh, Jesus is the light that enlightens every man who comes into the world. And if you study that passage, you'll uh, remember we said that it indicates even the pagans who resist God and who use their intellect to oppose God, it says they could not have logic, they could not even think if God did not enable them to think. We saw in Romans 1 through 2 that uh, even people who do not have any scriptures have such a clear knowledge of God, such a clear knowledge of His law written on their hearts that they are left without excuse. And the word that's used for that is revelation. Now, we Reformed people speak of this as general revelation as opposed to the inspired revelation of scripture. General revelation because it's given generally to, uh, to all people. Um, we saw that wisdom, promptings, conviction of sin, repentance are all called revelation. Faith is a special, uh, very special form of revelation. It's a gift from God. Uh, the opening of our eyes at salvation, doctrinal insight, insight in spiritual warfare, uh, wisdom needed for sanctification, for decision-making, the call of a minister to the ministry. Uh, many of those things are, are, are spoken in the Scripture uh, in, in the same category here. They're all a part of God's guidance. And it may be dim, it may be very easily mistaken, very easily misinterpreted, but still useful. And we saw uh, that all three parts of that diagram on the chart here need to be in place. Now let me give you two illustrations of how these three sides of guidance really do dovetail together. And the first illustration is the kingship of David. Uh, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is rejected by God as king, 
God says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. I want you to key in on that word today. He's torn the kingdom from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So the kingdom had already been given to David, only David didn't know about it yet. Several days later, Samuel tells him and anoints him with oil uh, at that point. And uh, that's the next chapter. But it's going to be over a year before the southern tribes accept him and anoint him with oil. And it's going to be seven and a half years before uh, the ten northern tribes anoint him and recognize him as being their king. And so you can see there can be quite a gap between the different parts of this triangle of guidance. Uh, he had been already anointed with the Holy Spirit in chapter 15. He had been given all of the giftings that he needed to be able to serve as a king, but God providentially didn't enable him to be king, and he was quite patient to wait for God's providence. He was unwilling to fight against Saul and to try to take the kingship uh, early. And a person might say, well, God's a rejected Saul. And he's already gifted uh, David, and he's uh, placed this burden within him. Why doesn't he just seize the kingship? And what David recognizes is that guidance is not purely subjective, like some people make it out to be. Okay, it's got to follow the scripture, and it's got to follow providence. And the scripture says that the people had to call a king. Okay? And until God moved the people's hearts to be willing to either vote Saul out or vote David in, he couldn't go anywhere with that, even though he was called. Can you see that there can be a gap between those uh, different parts? Uh, let me use a modern example. There's um, many biblical examples we could look at, but let's use the example of when a pastor is called to the ministry. Our presbytery will examine such a person, and they will try to ascertain, you know, whether the person meets all of the biblical criteria, whether there's a providence that indicates God's working in his life, and then they ask him about the subjective call uh, to the ministry, and they try to make sure they're all in place. Now, when I was called to the ministry, I didn't hear a voice from heaven. Um, uh, there are some people who have had remarkable calls to the ministry. That didn't happen to me. In fact, I didn't even desire to go into the ministry. Uh, it scared me to death. Now, I had a burden to minister, and I ministered in many ways, but the official status of being a pastor, that scared me to death. And for a number of years, uh, I ran from uh, that uh, calling upon my life. Uh, what happened in my life was a convergence of a number of things. First of all, a recognition I had the giftings. I had the qualifications that the scriptures uh, lay out. Other people saw it, and uh, I could see it. And I recognized it did not matter how gifted I was. It didn't matter how cold I could be to the ministry. If I lacked the um, biblical qualifications that a pastor needs to have, I could not say that I was called, at least not at that point in time. I could not say that I was called to the ministry. And so what I would need to do if I had passions for ministry is I would need to channel them into ministry in ways that would be other than a pastor. You see, you don't, you don't have to be a pastor to exhort and to counsel and to uh, do hospital visits and things like that. I think it'd be great if a church was full of people who, um, you know, had those kinds of, uh, had those kinds of, uh, of desires. And so there are some people who are very gifted and they will never be a pastor or an elder or a deacon because they miss out on one or more qualifications for office. I had a pastor come to me one time when I was uh, pastoring at Trinity and uh, he, he was a 
still in ministry, but he talked to me. He says, you know, I, I just feel real uncomfortable. I wanted your advice on whether you think I can continue to be a minister because I've had an unbiblical divorce and remarriage. And so I asked him some questions to certain, you know, what the situation was. And uh, once I found out what the details were, I told him, you know, you need to resign from the ministry immediately because right now you're engaged in serial polygamy. And he says, yeah, but this is the problem. I feel called to the ministry. I'm gifted by the Lord. Others recognize that the, Lord, the hand of the Lord is upon me. And so how can it be that I would leave the ministry? So I walked him through the three parts of this triangle and I used an illustration. I said, you know, in Africa, there are people who were quite gifted and had the ability to serve as pastors, but because when they were converted, they were already married to three wives, uh, the scripture just ruled them out as being able to be uh, a pastor. And if God wanted that person to be a pastor, he could have prevented them prior to their being uh, saved. He could have prevented them from having had two or three wives. And so you just have to trust God's providence in that. And I encouraged him, don't leave ministry, leave the ministry, but you can use your gifts in many ways. Just being a polygamist does not bar you from being a Christian, from serving in the church and many other uh, ways like that. So help, hopefully that can help you to get a little bit of um, a, a feel. So let me show you what I walked through. And the reason we're doing this is we're coming up uh, here soon to considering uh, is God calling people in our congregation to be elders? Are there people called to be deacons? Uh, maybe an assistant pastor coming on. And you guys need to be able to process through in your minds what it means to, 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 to think about this area of guidance. Well, I was processing through all the biblical evidence, and I looked at 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I saw 1 Timothy 1 says a teaching elder needs to know God's law, needs to know the gospel. And I looked at chapter 2, and it says that a man of God needs to be a man of prayer. Uh, chapter 3 indicates he needs to have qualifications that a ruling elder would have and that a, a deacon would have. Chapter 4 indicates he has to be skilled in the scriptures, love meditating on the scriptures, teaching them. Chapter 5 indicates he has to have burdens to rebuke, to exhort, to counsel. And as I went through all of the different qualifications in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, by the way, the qualifications for a teaching elder are, are far more extensive. It's three books as opposed to one paragraph for a ruling elder. But as I went through all of those qualifications, I began to realize not only did I have those, but God was burdening me to use those. And, and I had been already engaged in the using of those. So the subjective was lining up with the objective revelation of God. So let's look at the subjective side. It consisted of four things. As I've mentioned, that inner love for, that burden, that growing desire to, to minister in all of the things that a pastor is said to minister in. Secondly, recognition I was gifted. Third, and there are people who are truly called to uh, minister who don't have this. But the third thing that I had was a strong inner check in my spirit anytime I contemplated going into any other calling than into the pastoral ministry. You see, I had the fear of man. Uh, you guys don't recognize it if you're new, but people who knew me before knew I was an incredibly timid, shy person, very scared and um, uh, fearful of the ministry. But every time I even contemplated running away from that calling, I had such a strong check. Sometimes it almost made me feel physically ill. Now, some people think, well, is that maybe a lack of peace? Well, this went way beyond lack of peace. You know, it was just, it was a strong check. What can I call it? You know, it's something subjective. It's hard to, it's, it's hard to describe. And um, 
Then the fourth thing that uh, I had in, in my life was um, a faith and assurance that God was indeed calling me to the ministry. Now, we saw last week that nothing like this is infallible, right? There is such a thing as presumption. There is such a thing as a false faith. But hey, how can you explain an assurance that you have within you that this is exactly what God wants you to be involved in? You can't, but it is a faith that has taken me through real tough times. It's taken me through eight years of education and $100,000 of educational costs. And um, uh, it's just one of those things that's uh, taken me through ministry backlash. It's been a, a very useful thing. Then there was the providential side of guidance. From the time that I went to Bible school, uh, my parents really strongly encouraged me to go to Bible school, hoping all the time that the Lord would not call me to ministry. Um, there were people who were constantly saying, Phil, we really believe that you're called to the ministry. Uh, Phil, you're running away from the ministry. You need to be involved in that, sometimes bringing rebuke. And um, so there were people that God brought into my life. There was uh, the, uh, the successes that the Lord brought through my ministry. Then there were tests um, for a poor missionary boy to get through all of the costs that would be entailed in the PCA's ridiculous standards of education. Well, they're pretty good standards, but boy, they're tough. To be able to get through that, I said, Lord, you're going to have to be in this because it's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of time. And the Lord, I had a faith, the Lord would take me through that. And indeed he did. And then the providence lined up as a church called me, as Presbytery concurred, and they said, Phil, we hate you, but we're, we're agreeing. No, they didn't say that. <laughs> uh, they, they agreed that God's call was upon my life. And so you can see all of these things have to dovetail together. But just think of the, the example of David that David said um, his call was upon his life and the providence didn't line up for many years. Okay, so we need to, we need to keep that in mind. Now, when you're seeking God's guidance as to who you should vote for, try processing through these three parts of the triangle. Does the person meet the biblical criteria? If not, no matter how badly, Pastor Kaiser says, please, I need some elders. No matter how badly, you know, the church uh, needs elders, you really shouldn't vote for the person if you believe that they are not, at least in some measure, meeting those biblical qualifications. Um, and if you're an elder candidate out there, we've got uh, three elder candidates, don't be in dread of this process. This can be an intimidating thing to come up for election uh, just realize this is a part of God's go uh, guidance and realize even if God's subjective calling is upon you and his, his uh, biblical criteria is over you, if God is providentially not allowing you to be elected in the first time, just say, I'll just be patient like David. I know I'm called to ministry and in God's perfect timing that that will happen. So don't be intimidated by this. See, this is a, a tentative uh, thing that we work through in terms of of uh, God's guidance, and, and again, David can be the example there. Uh, there have been people, by the way, I should probably bring that up, and I've, I've brought it up in the elders class. The Bible does not say that an elder should be voted by a supermajority, okay? Uh, the technical word that's used for the voting of elders and deacons is a word that just means majority vote. That's the way it was used in the Greek democracies. 
And one of the things that's happened in uh, many uh, elders' uh, cases where churches will have a vote and a person has gotten in by a slim majority is this person has proved himself to have such a servant's heart and to be so invaluable in the church that when the next time of confirmation came up, there's different approaches people have. There's term eldership where people have to cycle off and uh, we're not going to be doing that. And then there's where the pastor and the elders have confirmation votes and they can continue serving just like president, well, presidents can't, but congressmen can keep serving forever, right? Uh, they can continue serving forever. And what's happened, they came in in their first vote with a very slim margin and the next vote was 100%. People could see God's grace upon this person so, so hard. And so don't see this as an infallible thing. If I don't get 90%, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm going to uh, feel offended. No, just realize God's guidance is subjective in their lives and it may grow over a period of time. Does that help? Does that make sense? Okay, now, I promised you we're going to try to go through 30 tests of guidance and... Uh, we're going to probably do most of those next week. <laughs> um, let me, first of all, try to give you enough examples of subjective guidance and of providential guidance that you'll get a little bit of a feel for what is involved uh, in those. I look back on the ancestry of my father and my mother and... I just stand in astonishment at the way in which God's providence has played in their lives. Back from my grandparents, my great-grandparents, there's a number of neat stories of God's intervention uh, in ways where men and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's working in their lives. And I remember one time, uh, uh, my parents had told me about this, my uh, mother was in medical school and my dad was up there as well, that's where they met. Uh, they didn't know each other that well. My dad definitely didn't have eyes on my mother at this time. Uh, but she was making a trip home for Christmas since she hadn't seen her parents for a while. And so she was traveling from Toronto to Detroit with a layover in Buffalo. And they were sitting in Buffalo trying to de-ice the wings. And finally, they told everybody to get off that they were canceling the, the flight. Uh, or at least they were anticipating canceling it. And she's deciding, well, she and one other guy decided they were going to take a train rather than waiting and, and getting back on the plane. And as she's leaving, she hears over the loudspeakers that the uh, airplane is going to be taking off after all. They succeeded in de-icing the... But she went on and almost didn't make the, the, the train. At that precise time, my father was mysteriously burdened to pray for this, um, this lady who had taken off. And as I say, he didn't have any eyes on her. He just all of a sudden had this premonition that she was in deep danger. And so <clears throat> he starts praying and then the peace of the Lord comes over him and he quits. Well, she comes back and uh, reports that this plane had crashed that had taken off and all but two of the passengers, she and another guy who had gotten off, uh, were killed in the, in the airplane and uh, how, how the Lord had spared her. And so there is an example where there is providential guidance, God making sure she gets off the plane through circumstances, and there is subjective guidance where God stirred up my father's heart to pray for her. Now, God also used that to kind of bring them together because my dad was thinking, why me, of all of the people here, did he burden to pray for her protection, you know? 
maybe uh, I need to be looking at this lady a little bit more carefully, you know? And so God can do multiple things. You know, guidance is a complex thing. It can open our eyes to look at circumstances in ways that we hadn't been looking at them uh, before. Okay, now God gives guidance through very mundane events as well. Uh, the second item that's under there, under um, uh, the providential of spiritual gifts, and you could just put natural abilities uh, in there as well. Very mundane things. You know, if you're colorblind, it's probably uh, not a wise idea to apply for a job as a home decorator, right? God sometimes just clearly leaves out certain things that you're going to be involved in just by the way that he has made you. And it, it shouldn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to tell you that a female shouldn't be a pastor. If God wanted that person to be a pastor, he would have made her into a male, right? Instead of into a female, because that's one of the qualifications. And yet many people will just be totally blind to these areas of providence that God has made you to be, you know, like that person out in Africa who had three wives. Providentially, you just have to say, I'm limited to other areas of ministry, but I'm not going to be a pastor. The next item is a hungry man who shows up at your doorstep, and First John and James both say, if God has brought somebody into your proximity and you have the ability to care for this person, it's God's guidance, his providential guidance. You need to be involved in some way. Romans 1.13, Paul says, I often planned to come to you but was hindered until now. Now, Paul did not get frustrated that uh, uh, he was uh, hindered in these burdens to come to Rome. He just trusted this is God's providential guidance. It's not his timing now. And that providential hindrance or even the closed doors immediately is just as much God's guidance as the burden that God had placed upon Paul's heart in the first place. Now, that burden was fulfilled. God didn't give it for no reason. It was eventually fulfilled, but it was many, many years later that it was fulfilled. Now, under the subjective column, we've already looked at the first two, assurance of salvation, uh, illumination, let me give you a story of uh, Admiral uh, Sir Thomas Williams. So you can see, sometimes this subjective guidance can not only be remarkable, but very difficult to understand, and yet still be very, very effective. And maybe later I'll give you some biblical examples of this. Admiral Williams was a commander of a ship that was crossing the Atlantic, and uh, when his course brought him in sight of Ascension Island, he looked over to the island and was suddenly seized by this strong urge to steer toward that island. And he just ignored it and kept on sailing. And the further he went, the more this urge uh, to steer toward that island became strong uh, to the point where he finally says, Lieutenant, let's uh, turn about the boat and steer toward the island. The lieutenant um, objected and said, no, that's going to slow us down, isn't it? And when he says that, it just made him more intensely anxious. So anyway, they steer toward the island, and when they came close to the island, they see a big white flag and 16 men who had been um, uh, shipwrecked there and who had been suffering from hunger. Now, he didn't seek that guidance. It came without him asking it. And yet it was something that was effective. He didn't know. It wasn't infallible. It wasn't anything that was normative. And yet it definitely got his attention, just like uh, the other subjective guidance got my dad's attention, right? Uh, we will not probably be able to shake off those things if the Lord is placing them upon, uh, upon our hearts. And some of you have said to me that you have had similar guidance uh, in your lives. I think Tom has mentioned uh, premonitions, you know, of something that's about to happen 
car accident or something, I forget. But uh, some of you have been woken up in the middle of the night with this premonition, somebody's in danger and you need to pray for them. And as you pray, um, you're able then to, to go back uh, to sleep. I know that's happened to me uh, a few times. And again, it's not normative, and uh, yet it's, uh, I think, a very important part of, of this guidance that we need to uh, think about. Now, the danger in bringing up examples like this is if these things have not happened to you, then you might be thinking, what's wrong with me? You know, I hear stories that are so cool like this and it doesn't happen to me. Well, just keep in mind, it only happened once to Admiral Williams. It's only happened a few times in my life. Uh, you know, ordinarily, God's guidance in our lives is in the very mundane things of uh, giving us assurance, uh, faith, wisdom, illumination, you know, in the understanding of the scripture, uh, it's not uh, necessarily every day that you receive things like this. And even in the area of providence, many times we don't even recognize God's hand upon our lives until many years later. Uh, at this last presbytery, Alan Mallory was um, uh, sharing <clears throat> how it looks like the Lord may be uh, opening up the opportunity for them to acquire Calvary Baptist Church for one twentieth of its um, appraised value. And uh, they, they uh, uh, well, he, let me back up. He, he was saying that when they first came to Omaha, his passion has always been to be a community pastor, to be evangelizing in the community of the church, to be located in the community. And he tried and tried and tried to find a house right near the old church. They uh, uh, visited 36 homes and couldn't find anything, but when they found this last home, which is five minutes away from their present church, um, they just felt a peace about going ahead and buying this one. But it did seem odd that uh, it didn't match their ministry. Well, if they move into this new building, uh, this house that they've purchased is two blocks away from the new church. And so he was saying, wow, this is so cool, you know. We just need to have patience in God's long-term planning you know, that it's going to all work out together for our good and that eventually those subjective and the providential and the biblical, you know, they do line up together. Now, when he was mentioning that to me, there was a whole string of providences that came to my mind because Glenn and I had talked for years and prayed for years and Glenn Durham, the former pastor, had established the relationship with this other pastor. He prayed with him every week and if it hadn't been for that um, you know, providential working together that maybe Glenn hadn't realized what things were going to come from that, uh, these present providences would not have happened. Now, let's look at a, uh, another example in the uh, subjective column, and this is the last example I'm going to give you. Psalm 25:14 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. Spurgeon said this, It signifies familiar intercourse, confidential intimacy. Carnal minds cannot guess what is intended by it, and even believers cannot explain it in words, for it must be felt to be known. Now, if you know what an academic guy um, Charles Spurgeon was, that's a pretty remarkable thing for him to be, say, but he says it must be felt to be known. He who does not know the meaning of this verse will never learn it from a commentary. And it's true. It's hard to explain why you perhaps have faith to achieve or to do something everybody else thinks is ridiculous and that's not going to be achievable. It's hard to explain 
you know, a check in the spirit or a sense, I, I, I just don't feel like I've got to go ahead to go in this direction. Uh, let me give you one example from my life. Um, I used to love talking to Jehovah's Witnesses because I had read almost every book that they had published, their magazines, I'd underlined their Bibles, and I could just work circles around them, knew just all the weak points, uh, which sometimes led to prideful talk, which I had to repent of. But there was this one time that a lady came, and she didn't come with a partner like they normally do. This lady came to my doorstep, and she wanted to talk to me about, and she was so aggressive wanted to talk to me about these things and I would open my mouth to speak and it was as if God was putting his hand upon my mouth and not allowing me to say a word other than just a brief testimony that I have a, a confidence in my salvation and uh, I don't have time to talk with you. And uh, she came back four times and every time I wanted to talk and it was like the Lord put a hand uh, over my mouth and would not allow me to do so. It's very hard to explain, but if you read the comments of the Puritan writers on this verse, German, uh, Morrison, Dixon, Thomas Goodwin, William Gurnell, William Fenner, John Trapp, and Thomas Watson, they're all, by the way, collected together uh, quotations in Spurgeon's commentary. He's, he's done all the work for you, you know, of, of looking at those. But you'll see that they apply the verse to illumination, to faith for practical issues, to having a premonition of the future, to assurance, basically all 13 of the areas of subjective guidance that we looked at last week. And since last week, we saw that all three areas are so subject to misinterpretation, we need to be tentative. We need to have a multitude of counselors who can, who can show us our blind spots, who can give interaction with us. And I think we need as well the um, 30 tests, biblical tests and steps of guidance. And I'll just go through, I'll just go through uh, a few and get things started. First question that we need to ask ourselves is this, and I apologize I didn't get an outline to you today. Is my motive self-centered or is it God-centered? Do I really have a deep desire to see God lifted up or am I being selfish in my request for guidance? Now, the verse in your outline that you don't have, that <laughs> um, I've listed there, verse 1 says, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Those who fear him. James 4.13, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And so, don't expect guidance if you're wayward and just wanting, you know, things that will please your own flesh. Second question, am I coming in faith? Hebrews tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. And so if you don't believe that God does any subjective guidance, you can't possibly come to the Lord in faith because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Unless you're convinced by the scriptures, by the word of God, that this is the way the Lord works, you will not be able to come in faith and ask him for, uh, for guidance. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Now, Metters tries to say that that only applies to providence. That's ridiculous, because providence happens to everybody. He's talking about something that only happens to believers who don't trust in their own understanding, but lean entirely upon the Lord. They trust on the Lord. He says, yes, I'll, I'll give this kind of direction to you. The third question is from the same verse. Am I seeking the Lord's ways in everything that I do? If you're already deviating from God's word, don't expect any more guidance. Uh, he's not going to bless you in his leading. Fourth question, 
Am I willing to do God's will or am I simply looking for what options I have? Now this only, because anytime you're dealing with ethics, anytime you're dealing with what must be done, then it's biblical guidance because that's the only normative guidance we have, right? And so when it comes to looking at the Bible and you're saying, Lord, subjectively, give me faith to apply it or give me illumination to understand your word. Uh, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of, out of your law. Scripture says God's not going to answer that prayer if you have the attitude that uh, I'm going to wait and see before, you know, if it's doable, if it's something comfortable before I give my commitment to obeying it. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He says, if you want to do it, then you will know whether this doctrine is truth. Then I will open your eyes. So God basically is saying, I'm not going to answer your prayer, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law, unless you give God a blank check and you say, Lord, ahead of time, no matter how uncomfortable this is, you show me from your word, I'm willing to follow. I'm willing to do it. And God says, good, I will open your eyes. I'll give you the guidance that you ask for. There's no integrity in the other approach to scripture. Now related to this is point five. Have you completely yielded your life to the Lord this day? Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's kind of reinforcing what we said earlier. Our very bodies need to be yielded as instruments for the Lord. Uh, under point six, I give a couple of scriptures, Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me, those who diligently, oh, excuse me, those who seek me diligently will find me. So the question is, are you diligent in seeking God? Fasting is often a means of diligently seeking his will. So let me read that scripture, Ezra 8, 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones in all our possessions. Now, in context, Ezra was not talking about what was morally right. They knew what was morally right. The context is there's bandits out there. We're carrying all this gold and silver that had been captured from the temple. We're bringing all kinds of stuff with us. And we could get robbed by bandits. Lord, which way do we go? Okay, that's the context. And so they pray, they fast, they seek the Lord diligently, and the Lord providentially, he answers. Uh, so, have you fasted? Jeremiah 29, 13, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Seventh test of our guidance is to ask if there's any sin that the Spirit's already convicted us about. Okay, that's a, that's a form of guidance, right? If he's convicted you about a sin, you say, Well, I don't like that guidance, Lord. Give me something else, Okay. And the Lord says, well, once you deal with this guidance and you walk in the light I've given to you, I'll give you more. So here's the passage, Isaiah 58, verses 1 all the way through, gives several issues that Israel needed to repent of. And it says, if you repent of this and if you repent of that, then, verse 11 says, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought. Eighth guideline. Pray specifically and definitely, believing God will give you the wisdom that you need. 
James 1, 5 through 7 promises wisdom to all who ask in faith, but it says not a thing will be given if you come double-minded, not really believing. James says, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Matthew 21, 22, whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, it should be obvious, so I won't belabor it. Ninth principle, pray with some others in agreement for guidance. Now, some people might wonder, you know, why, why did you call all of us to pray and fast? Uh, you know, the pastor can pray and fast uh, for guidance, but you're involved in it because you guys are going to be voting. Secondly, uh, the Bible, the New Testament pattern is that the whole church prays and fasts when there are elders uh, that are elected or there are deacons that are elected. And the third reason for that is there is a community of faith that is developed as well. And that's what we want to, to come. Last week, I read a scripture where Paul said that as the faith of the congregation grows, his sphere of ministry is increased. And so we want the whole congregation to enter into this process. Tenth principle may seem too obvious to mention, but how infrequently do Christians have devotions? And if biblical guidance is the, is the primary means of guidance, it's the only normative means of guidance, we've got to be in the Word if we're to be guided by the Lord. And so Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And there are many passages which call uh, for a daily time in the Word and prayer. Eleventh test simply asks, have I done research? Okay, some people are too lazy to apply wisdom. They depend wholly upon providence. Hey, it was an open door, Pastor. Well, just keep in mind, some open doors lead to elevator shafts with a rude awakening at the bottom, right? Uh, Jonah had an open door, you know. Hey, providential. A ship going the right way, away from uh, Nineveh. No. Uh, open doors by themselves mean nothing, okay? Some people depend wholly upon the subjective. I feel led, okay? Well, does it line up with the Scripture? It's got to be judged by the Scripture. Do some research or you will stumble. Proverbs 18, 13 says, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. A couple verses later, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And uh, let me emphasize as strongly as I can, there is nothing unspiritual about doing research. In fact, the very opposite is true. If you're a person who's just constantly too lazy to do research, you just want, you know, some kind of guidance out of the blue, God says you're immature. You've got to do the research. Got to use your head. Proverbs 14, 15, the simple believes every... I want to end with just one more. I think we'll make this our last one. The twelfth thing we can do is to make a list of pros and cons for either course of action. And people say, oh, Phil, you know, anybody could think of that. A pagan could think of that. That's not very spiritual, is it? Um, <clears throat> but let me tell you something. It certainly objectifies our thinking. And I've had so many people, as they have put down the pros and cons in the paper, oh, it's obvious which direction I should go. Now that I've seen it on paper, you know, it objectifies the process for them. Now, in Luke 14, 26 through 33, Christ gives two illustrations that use this so-called unspiritual principle, and then he comes up with a very interesting conclusion. His conclusion is that we ought to weigh the pros and cons of becoming a Christian. Now, let me, let me read this for you. This is very surprising. 
Luke 14, 26 and following. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So first of all, he's saying, yes, there are enormous sacrifices to becoming one of my disciples. You may die. Uh, you for sure have to die to yourself. You have to follow me. There's going to be enormous sacrifices. But when you consider the alternatives, when you weigh the pros and the cons, it's obvious which direction and which choice you ought to make. He says on this side of the page is eternal hell. On this side of the page is eternal heaven. Duh, which direction should you go? And yet he also goes on to say, most people are not going to make the right choice. Why? Because they don't want to know the pros and cons. They want to satisfy their own fleshly uh, impulses. But anyway... Um, he says it is something that, uh, that, we ought to, that we ought to do, and he uses these two illustrations, verses 28 and following. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So this guy's weighing the alternatives. He says... Boy, I sure don't want to be a conquered nation and a subject king having to do what this uh, sovereign says. But the alternatives are certain death or banishment. Eh, I guess I will uh, sue for peace and I'm going to do it on my terms when he's a long ways off and say, hey, I like you, you know. And so he's saying I'm weighing the alternatives. <clears throat> and so um, here's his conclusion based on that. Verse 33. So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He is saying, you two have a tough decision, but when you weigh the alternatives, what choice do you have? Now, in the next chapter, as he indicates, apart from God's sovereign grace, nobody's going to make the choice. It takes the good shepherd seeking the lost, and he gives a whole bunch of illustrations showing how God has to turn people's hearts because we're fools. Uh, we do not turn to the Lord as we ought. But that's a different story. The point I'm wanting to make here is Jesus says, if you would weigh the pros and cons for building a tower and for waging a war, why in the world for a big decision like being a disciple would you not weigh the pros and the cons? Now, we can reverse that. If it's not unspiritual to weigh the pros and the cons of becoming a Christian, surely it's not unspiritual to weigh the pros and cons of building a tower, waging a war, getting married, or doing anything else that you do in life. Does that make sense? And we don't have time to finish all of the tests, uh, despite the fact that Travis uh, said earlier that uh, we need to just go ahead and preach for two hours. Who cares, Phil? Well, it's the parents with little kids. <laughs> so we're going to be merciful. Uh, but hopefully you're getting a little bit of a feel. What does it mean to walk in, in guidance but maintain the scriptures as being the only author authoritative and normative guide? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the God who leads and guides your people. And uh, uh, Father, uh, so many uh, times we see your leading and your guidance in ways we weren't even aware of. And yet you were there providentially uh, preparing the way for us every step of the way. We bless you, Father, for that. We bless you. I pray that you would help us to be sensitive to those times that you make us aware of things out of your good pleasure and uh, your kindness in our lives subjectively. But especially, Father, help us to be people of the book, 
who can interpret providence and can interpret those subjective things with wisdom that flows from your word. Uh, help us to uh, have a, a balance in all three areas of guidance. And uh, it is our desire to glorify you through that. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.